Hello, and welcome to the Electric Wire podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Jilks. I'm the executive director of the Customers First Coalition. The Electric Wire podcast is a production of the Customers First Coalition, and I'd like to extend a big thank you, as always, to the members of the Customers First Coalition for your support. On this podcast, we're going to feature two interviews specifically on the topic of utility regulation. So a bit of history for you. The Customers First Coalition was founded in the late 1990s to ensure that any legislative or regulatory restructuring of the electric utility industry would benefit customers, safeguard reliability, protect the environment, and enable customers in Wisconsin to receive affordable service at stable prices. Restructuring is also sometimes known as deregulation or retail choice. From our perspective at Customers First, the bottom line is that no matter what you call it, fundamentally restructuring the way Wisconsin regulates electric utilities could lead to higher costs for residential and smaller customers in the long run. It could lead to a drop in energy system reliability and more scams targeted at vulnerable customers. We oppose retail choice for these reasons. We support effective regulation for the benefits it offers customers. My two guests today have a lot of experience on the topic of regulation. Ellen Nowak was first appointed to the Wisconsin Public Service Commission in July of 2011 by Governor Scott Walker. She was reconfirmed for a new six-year term beginning in March of 2013. Commissioner Nowak was named chairperson of the Public Service Commission of Wisconsin in March of 2015. In March of 2018, Governor Walker appointed her as Secretary of the Department of Administration in Wisconsin. She served in that role until the end of the governor's term and was then reappointed to the commission starting in January of 2019. Our second interview is with Bill Malcolm, who is a senior legislative representative for state advocacy and strategy for utility issues at AARP. AARP has nearly 38 million members in all 50 states, and it's a nonpartisan, nonprofit, nationwide organization that helps empower people to choose how they live as they age, strengthens communities, and fights for the issues that matter most to families, such as health care, employment and income security, retirement planning, affordable utilities, and protection from financial abuse. I'm excited for you all to hear the great information from these conversations. I know this podcast runs a bit long, but it was tough to find things to cut to make it shorter. As a reminder, we'll put the interview start times in the show notes. So if you need to come back and listen, you can. You can also listen at 1.5 speed or higher to help you get through the content. And with that, I'll turn you over to the conversation with Commissioner Nowak first, followed by the interview with Bill Malcolm. I'm happy to be joined by Commissioner Ellen Nowak of the Public Service Commission of Wisconsin. Ellen, welcome. No introduction needed for most of our listeners, but tell us more about your role now at the Public Service Commission. Yeah, well, I'm in an interesting spot now for the first time and, you know, since my colleague Mike Hipsch left last almost a year ago, I'm now serving in the minority on the commission. So it's a different role for me in a way. But I mean, my charge hasn't strayed from what I see as what my duties are. But 
I never, and I don't think anyone ever grows up saying I want to be a a utility commissioner. Like most people even don't know what it is. And um, it'll be 10 years. This is crazy. It'll be 10 years this summer when Governor Walker first appointed me to the commission. Congratulations. Thanks. I remember, you know, hearing about the opening at the time I was chief of staff to Dan Varakis, the Waukesha County executive. And you know, a couple of people started saying, this is, this would be a good, good fit for you. And I was like, you think so really? And I, you know, started to look at it some more and, you know, sure enough, I applied and, um, and got it. And ironically, Mike Hipsch was secretary of administration then. So he was part of the interview panel. <laughs> um, and never in a million years did I think I'd be sitting here 10 years later saying, you know, I'm at the commission still, obviously I, I went away for a little bit, but to do the, the, what I call my combat duty at DOA, which was enjoyable, but, and I've been back, but um, didn't have a a background at all in the utility world. I'm I'm an attorney. I practiced business litigation for several years in the Milwaukee area and worked in the legislature as chief of staff and legal counsel to the speaker. But so I learned a lot and um, I find myself now talking with new commissioners. I just spoke to the new commissioner in Iowa the other day who he's like, this is like drinking from the fire hose. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get catch. And I said, you will, you get there. And, you know, he has some utility background. And I said, one of the, one of the things someone told me when I first took this job was that you're going to meet some of the best people and make some great friends all around the industry in this job. And just didn't really comprehend it at the time. And it is a hundred percent true. I have made some great friendships from um, other commissioners and other stakeholders from around the country and my involvement with the National Association. Um, so that has that has really come to fruition. And I, that's what I've really enjoyed too a lot about the, is the collegiality and the camaraderie about the job. And that's one of the things I love about the commission is we're, you know, engineers, attorneys, accountants, really highly educated, qualified staff, people dedicated and, you know, across the industry. And again, not a lot of people fully understand this world and, you know, what is rate, how rate making really works. So it's a, it's a, it's a nice group of people and um, it is not as as hyper-partisan as every other single thing in the world is right now. While there, of course, still is some here, it is not in the hyper way that we see it in so many other areas of our life. I agree. That's one of my favorite parts about this industry as well. When I was thinking about putting together a podcast on regulation, I thought of you because a couple years ago, four years ago, I looked back in the Customers First Coalition records. You were you presented the keynote address at a Customers First Coalition Power breakfast, and you presented on regulation, utility regulation. I think it went beyond a 101. Um, it was really just what's you know what's the status of regulation from a regulator's perspective here in Wisconsin, and I wanted to bring you back to talk some more about that. We were thinking about regulation today. So the first question I wanted to ask you is pretty basic. Why does Wisconsin regulate utilities? Well, I think there's 
there's one word that really summarizes it and it's the short answer it's efficiency right because utilities are a natural monopoly and and when utilities first started out i think there wasn't the regulation but then there started to be this duplication of service all the different providers trying to literally put their poles and lines down the same street and that became you know disorganized and and really unsafe so then there was the move to well this really is a natural monopoly and you know government oversight over this critical provision of service um, is necessary in order to you know provide the safe necessary service to people so you know that evolved and it it is the in the most efficient way to do it and i think the most safe and you know as a fiscal and small government conservative you know I still believe that is true because there are because there are thankfully I think very few natural monopolies, but this is certainly one area where, you know, the competition and the duplication of service would not be for the benefit of the customer in the long run. So, what would happen if Wisconsin didn't regulate utilities? So, what happened though then is, I think it started in the '80s, moving into the '90s you did see some states start to peel off and say, you know, I want a choice in my provider. And that happened, um, We there's different names for it. It's been called restructuring. It's been called deregulated. Um, I don't like either of those names. I mean, restructuring is maybe the closest because to me, it's certainly not fully deregulated. Um, and there's about, depending on what you count as deregulated, there's I think 18 states that have some where they restructured their regulatory structure where, because in Wisconsin, we are what was known as that vertically integrated where the utility owns everything from the meter to the generation, same company. Other states have started, they've started to move away from having, so they allow the a different provider, you can choose your generation. And, but you still have, uh, an incumbent distribution utility because still it doesn't make sense for that duplication at the distribution level. Um, you saw, so you saw. So when you say that, it's like it's still one set of lines going to people's houses. Yeah, right, right. right. But um, another term for that is called retail choice when people are choosing the generation but still relying on the incumbent utility to deliver. The power. That's right. Yes. So, um, and so all these states that have retail choice or restructuring or whatever we want to call it, they still have a commission. They still are subject to regulation. So it's not, it's not the wild west. It's not like, you know, when you can go to Target and pick something off the shelf. And this is still a highly regulated industry, no matter if you're in like our, our state to the South Illinois is a retail choice state. Um, and the reasons for that were one is just the principle. I should be able to choose, right? And then the other reason I think that started to move along was um, they felt that there could be more price competition. And then an, an, another reason started to emerge after some of the, the federal um, energy acts passed in the 80s was they thought that retail choice would help spur the growth of more renewable energy. And I think when you look back now, there, you know, has this retail choice deregulation worked? I think it's a mixed bag. Um, 
The results are, well, it depends how you look at it. And Wisconsin did take a look at it in the 90s. And I think even there was a, a group, a commission that looked at it. And it, it, it stopped after uh, other states started to look at it. And there was the blackouts in California because they were moving towards deregulation. And there became a concern about the security of supply. That's one of the, the cons against the deregulation is, you know, what is the incentive to have that supply there? And then I think there was also a failed merger between We Energies and Excel um, that broke off that also kind of started to put the brakes on some of the discussion here at the state level. And then it reemerged again in the early 2000s, kind of right when I came back to the commission. And probably what led to me talking to customers first about this several years ago was that it was another choice is we got it, we have we have high rates here. We need to have the customer choose. And if the customer can choose and the prices will automatically go down. And again, I, I think if you look at states that have done this, at least many of the, again, it's how you measure it, they're not in some cases paying lower rates than the customers in regulated states. And if they are, it's de minimis. I I think that some studies have shown that on average, retail choice states have rates higher or 30% higher than regulated states. Now that's not to say that every regulated state has lower rates than every right. deregulated state, right. if I'm saying that right. Um, but on average, if you combine them all together. So I think one of the things I was, I was at that power breakfast, but I wasn't with customers first at the time, but one of the things you said that really stuck out to me was what's the problem you're trying to solve? And if you're trying to solve the problem of rates, there's other possibly more effective ways to get at that than opening sort of that Pandora's box of retail choice. And when we're getting there, um, you know, cause to me, again, the two problems that I think deregulation was trying to solve is the rate issue and, um, growth of renewables. And we're seeing on the latter, we're seeing the growth of renewables in all across the country, um, largely due to the price. It's coming down. Um, and that's why, you know, I, so we're seeing that ability, we're seeing that happen without retail choice. Uh, renewables come to fruition and grow in states where there's not retail choice. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I, I would put that one, okay, check that box. We can do it without retail choice. And on price and customer choice, I think we've done a lot at the state commission in order to allow customers to have the ability to have some control over their bill. And we're doing as much as we can to control the prices coming forward. You know, we did a large build out of the generation system in the 90s, which helped, you know, that's what put the pressure on rates. And there's so many things that go into why rates are what they are. You know, I think maybe there's this disillusion that, well, we go to retail choice, then poof, the, the prices automatically fall. That ignores all the different factors, even global factors that go into why prices are what they are. Um, so we've done a lot, I think, at the state commission to allow the customer a lot of choice. And it, the other thing that I think is really interesting too in, in retail choice states is that by and large, 
residential customers haven't taken advantage of that ability to shift their, you know, pick their generation source. Because to them, it's not that big of a difference on their, on their bill. Um, you know, it's probably a cup of something at Starbucks is the difference in what they might see as a change. And it's not worth the research. And should I go with this provider and that? Now, you are seeing, I think, a shift and it does make a difference in your commercial industrial customers where the energy price is such a large component of their um, their costs. And that makes sense. I get that. So, you know, does it make sense to offer it to residential customers when they're, there's not even, they're not even availing themselves to the choice that's out there? Could you talk a little bit about what the commission has done on real-time pricing to sort of help the industrial customers out? Yeah, we've done a lot, I think, at the um, commercial industrial level for our large energy users in the state. And this started um, right before I came to the commission. And we've, I think every every investor-owned utility in the state has one. And we now have a handful of our municipal utilities that have what we call um, an economic development rate. Every utility has a different name to it. It's a new load market pricing. It's real-time pricing. It's, you know, whatever the, however they want to market it. But what it does is it allows um, a large energy user, it incents them to move some new load or put some of their newer load um, basically at a wholesale price. We could let them have it at a cheaper price for this new load and it phases out over time because we know that that is, not always, it's not going to be, I think, the factor perhaps in why a company is either going to locate here or choose to expand here, but because there's always a multitude of factors that go into it. But for some of our high energy users, like our paper companies and uh, foundries, where energy is such a large component of their costs, it's going to be up there. And we don't want to be a contributing factor to why Wisconsin's going to lose some jobs. So we've structured those in a way though, where it's not um, hurting the residential customers in that way, that that was really important to us is trying to keep the cost causation closer to the classes that are impacted by this. And again, keeping the load in the area is hugely important to all classes because unfortunately we've seen too many cases where a large energy user leaves an area and that pie is still the same size and the pie meaning the costs. And now it just has to, everyone has to eat more pie and not everyone really wants to eat more pie and they can't afford to. So I always want to eat more well, pie. I do, actually, I do want to eat more pie, especially the problem I've been having during the pandemic. Pumpkin pie too, but um, we all, we can't say we all can afford to eat more pie. Our waistlines <laughs> can afford to eat more pie. Um, so you know, so whatever tools, so that's one of the tools that we've done. And like I said, we've got all of our industrial utilities or investor owned utilities have one of these and they've been really popular. And of course we did one um, for Foxconn for their incentive to stay and build here in Wisconsin. And we're seeing it. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see it with some of our municipal utilities as well, because I know that a lot of the, the smaller um, manufacturing companies that still have a, a large presence that are more in our rural areas are with these municipal utilities. And um, it's important. It's an important thing for us to offer. So 
With your work at NARUC, which is the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, I know you probably have a chance to talk to colleagues from across the country, including in retail choice states. And I'm interested if you have heard examples of what the customer experiences is in some of these retail choice states. It is interesting when I talked with my colleagues around the country because um, there's a couple of them from uh, the retail choice states who will tell me like, that was the worst decision we've ever made. Our rates are so high. Um, what always strikes me though, is that when I'm talking to the commissioners, they are so involved in the entire process, just like I am, it is hard for me to distinguish that they're even from a retail choice state, which again, brings me back to what I said earlier. It's like that if you think there's going to be less regulation or less involvement, um, that's just not necessarily the case. And when we talk with our colleagues, whether it's, you know, we're talking with each other on panels or whatnot, we often distinguish, well, can you do this in a restructured state? There are some things that are more easier to do or just, you just do it different. Um, I think that those of us that are still in a virtually integrated state, if you want to find a way to get something done, we can still try to do that. We just maybe have to take a different route to get there. Um, because we're not seeing like, you know, the, the number of customer, you know, if you want to talk about customer choice, customers in the state still have a lot of choice among how their, where their energy comes from in a way, or how their bill looks. Because with, with the introduction of, you know, the green tariffs that someone can sign on to, you can get, you can um, I shouldn't say get, but you can pay for part of your bill to help pay for renewable energy. Community solar gardens are incredibly popular. So you can take advantage of renewable um, energy in that mechanism. Um, we have utilities that have time of use rates. Um, some even have a three-part time of use rate where you can really, if you really want to get into the techniques of your bill, you can manage your daily usage and have some control over the cost of your bill. We have um, two investor-owned utilities now that have gone to a flat bill because some customers just like want it to be just like their, their uh, cell phone bill where they pay for a certain amount a month and it's this, they pay a certain amount a month and it's, you know, whether I use 300 kilowatts a month or 600 kilowatts a month, they're gonna pay that same, it's trued up at the end of the year, but they just want the certainty. Um, and those are getting popular too. So there's a lot of different options that I think we've been able to integrate into the, on the customer side here that I've heard that are available in other states that are in those restructured mm -hmm. states. Yeah, that was actually gonna be one of my questions was, are there ways to facilitate and encourage the use of new technologies while still protecting all customers? And I guess I'm wondering if you can kind of expound on that protecting all customers part mm -hmm. and what the commission's role is there. So I think a great example of that is these renewable energy rider programs that we have for the commercial, more on the commercial programs, um, MG&E, WEPCO, and I think Dot Power and Light has one, but it's basically where, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, large customers or, you know, Walmart, for example, that have, um, environmental goals 
for their companies. And so the companies themselves want to be able to say, I am offsetting my energy uses by X amount of, you know, procuring X amount of renewable energy. And then the question becomes, well, if your provider, uh, you know, can you get that through your provider and claim that you're still getting that renewable energy credit without having a cost to other customers? Because if there's a lot of, you know, small owned businesses that say, that's great that you have that goal, but I don't want to help you pay for that goal. And um, maybe someday I can get there, but right now I'm just, you know, I, I'm not the size of Walmart. I can't absorb all these costs. And so what we've been able to do is structure those tariffs at MG&E and the others that it is um, that basically that the cost of that green facility is solely borne by the customer customers who are on that tariff. Um, I think there was one in the MG&E case where there was about seven entities that agreed to kind of come together and basically pay for the renewable project. And the costs were not going to be spread among the other customers. It's spread out over the lifetime of the project. So I think there's a way to get it done. Because um, to me, it's really important that one entity's goal shouldn't be borne, the cost of that shouldn't be borne by everybody. And so far, I think we, we've done a good job. And, you know, the question's going to be in the long run is, is the utility adding um, capacity or energy that's no that's not needed? Um, and are they offsetting something that they're using that, you know, is used or can be used and useful for the sake of the renewable energy coming on the system. That's gonna get a little trickier if these get larger and there's more of them down the road, but it's not a problem yet. There's probably a lot more to be said on that particular topic, but we'll just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I worry about is like, do we need all this? I mean, I, I know people wanna claim it, but when you've got still a gas plant, you know, they've got the rivers like Alliant, Riverside gas plants, very, very new. Well, people don't want gas anymore. Well, what are we gonna what are we gonna do with that? We're paying for this thing for a while. So that's gonna be the trick. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on performance-based rate making? I am intrigued by it. Regulation always is now getting blamed for, well, there's technology and the utilities and the customers and they're way up here and there's the old regulators and the regulatory system sitting still at the start line and everyone's way ahead. And, you know, regulation, you need to be faster, quicker, better, et cetera. And uh, yes, but no. I mean, there is a reason there is a deliberative method why we have to go do things. It's the analysis. It's, you know, we are the ones that have to look out for all of the entities, not just the entity that's advocating for that advanced technology to be put in use. We have to we have to kind of be the ones to say, well, yeah, but you got to eat your vegetables too. So let's sit back here and you know review this and be a little more. Let's think about the long term consequences of it. So there's that. Um, now, is performance based rate making some way to maybe find a middle ground to some of that? It could be. I know. 
um, Minnesota took years and years to start to develop a performance-based rate-making process. There's other states that have done it too, I think Rhode Island. Is there a way to maybe have, if, if it can be done where there's like performance is tied to actual policy goals, I think that that in some areas, it can make sense in the regulatory world. I'm not one of these that believes that we need to, we're using an antiquated regulatory scheme that was great in the 1940s and 50s. And this is, you know, 2021, and we've got to have a whole new regulatory scheme. I don't think that is the case, but I also think we do need to be a little more adaptive and be a little more nimble. And I don't know if that's performance-based rate making in some metrics, or is that something where, you know, we call and other industries have seen this in healthcare and the financial world, world the um, regulatory sandbox, where it's, to me, it's like a, like a pilot on steroids or a pilot project with more structure to it. Uh, because one of the things I'm starting to, I'm getting tired of the word pilot because I don't know what a pilot is. It's whatever people want it to be. And I think we have to start to put structure around these pilots and end dates and more parameters and metrics at the beginning so we know um, what the outcome is and if it should be continued. So I think that it's worth, it's definitely worth looking at because um, everyone, it gives everyone a little more incentive. You know, we have we've got some performance-based rate making light in a way where we've done revenue sharing mechanisms on utilities. And, you know, if they earn a certain, um, you know, basis number of basis points above their ROE, then those extra earnings have to be shared. However, we split that proportionally 50, 50, 75, 25, however it is between the customers and the shareholder. So there's, you know, there's the incentive there and it, that's worked well for customers. We've refunded customers money back to them using that. So it's worth looking at. Um, I'm always a little more cautious in these areas and I kind of want to see how it works. I, I don't want Wisconsin to be the guinea pig in the situation. I'd like to see how is it working in some other states before we start to really dive in on that one. Thank you. In your view, does retail choice lead to problems with supply issues? There's not a lot of state. I haven't heard the restructuring thing kind of, um, you know, come back. And and I don't know if that's part of it. I mean, one of the other pitfalls with the restructuring has been, you know, you've seen it in, I can't remember what states on the East Coast, but Illinois and Ohio, the bailouts, because of that, you know, you don't have the security of supply in a restructured state like you do here. And so when they've had the closure of certain plants, the incentive to build is gone. So then they're bailing out the nuke plants and even some coal plants. And that's led to huge issues, you know, aside from the whole illegal stuff that went on in Illinois and Ohio. But, you know, the Illinois legislature had to pass this massive bill, which basically raised rates for everybody across the board. So, it wasn't done in the commission, it was done at the legislative level and a huge tax on residents and business owners, all because they had to, they were scared of, they, it was scarcity of supply. And, and that's, you know, then you get into the whole capacity market issue and is that worth it in a restructured state? And that's a whole, you know, other debate and discussion. Is there anything else you wanna add on the customer impacts of retail choice? 
Well, the, the only other thing I'd add about, you know, we hear a lot about consumers want this, consumers want that. And, you know, at least how I view it as my role as the commissioner is, is it just the loudest voice or is it the majority of the voices? Because we really do have to ask that question. Because I still believe that there is a vast, vast majority of customers who really, there are so many things that are going on in their life and they just want to pay their bill. They just want to pay that. They just want to know the lights are going to go on. They flip the switch and they plug in their phone to, to charge it and, and pay their bill. And it's not outrageously expensive or more than it was the previous month. And so when we start to get into, well, customers want this, customers want that. I don't want to be the downer in it, but I do. And you do hear this from the consumer advocates too. It's like, can we talk, make sure when we're making these quote changes for the customer, that we're really thinking of all the customers or when we're making the changes, it's, it's, it's done in a way where customers, it cost cause or cost payer, that principle is held to the extent possible. You can never get it down to hundred percent. But I, I think that's what also I hear from a lot of the consumer advocates too. It's like, can we make sure we're talking about, we're looking up for all the customers, not just the ones that are getting the headlines. All right, last question. If you had all the power in the energy industry, what would you do first? You know, I think I would right now with all of the change happening in the industry and the movement to be the one that is the first to do something, the first to reach a goal is, I would just like to remind all of my fellow commissioners and everyone involved that just don't forget your true, what got you there basically. What is your true mission? Just reliable and affordable rates. Just don't ever forget those grounding principles. I would just instill that, like put that on a plaque in everyone's office because I think that is, that sometimes when we get in it, it, we get caught up in the excitement of um, a new energy source or a new way to do X, Y, or Z. Um, we forget about those are the core principles and stick to those principles. And if you stick to those guardrail guardrails, then you're going to be okay. So stay within the. Make sure that everyone stays within the guardrails. Is I guess I'm going to give advice at the end. <laughs> nice, just reliable and affordable. Yes. Yep. Thank you, Ellen. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you again to Commissioner Nowak. And now I'll turn you over to the interview with Bill Malcolm of the AARP. Welcome, Bill, to the Electric Wire podcast. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Where are you physically located right now, Bill? So I'm a teleworker for AARP National Office, and I work in my uh, home in Indianapolis, Indiana. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, via Zoom. I know that sometimes you make visits to the Madison area, so when that's safe again, we'd love to see you in person as well. Yes. I'm a longtime... Uh, uh, attendee at customer first events 
the coldest uh, day in Madison, they had one, uh, and I had the pleasure of going a couple years ago. And uh, I think I, I love your organization. I've uh, very familiar with it in my prior jobs at MISO and ANR Pipeline, as well as AARP, and always love getting to Madison. Well, great, thanks, Bill. Okay, so tell us more, a little bit more about your background in the industry then and how you got to AARP, what you're doing there now. Okay, so um, I grew up in Madison, went to Memorial, uh, went to college uh, at the UW one year and then uh, got a BA in economics out in University of California, Santa Cruz, MA at uh, University of Washington in Seattle. And I started my career at Seattle City Light uh, worked at PG&E, and then in 1994, I moved to Detroit, where I worked for A&R Pipeline as the manager of state regulatory affairs, and I covered the Wisconsin PSC on regulatory and legislative issues. And uh, in 2000, I joined MISO as one of the first employees, the uh, Midwest Independent System Operator that serves Wisconsin and worked there 12 years. And uh, after that, I was a reporter for two years and I joined uh, AARP doing utility advocacy in 2012. So I'm going on my seventh year. And so uh, I've been around the block here and very familiar with Wisconsin energy issues. I know Commissioner Nowak and uh, many of the staffers quite well. Thanks for that background, Bill. We're talking about regulation today. What is AARP's view on this topic? Okay, so retail choice has been uh, debated uh, for over 20 years now. Indeed, uh, in 1994, Wisconsin was one of the first states uh, to consider it. And um, uh, I've been involved with the issue uh, since my days at PG&E when they first started talking about it out in California. Uh, retail choice is the idea that customers could pick uh, a, a different supplier to provide them with the energy portion of their bill, their electricity. Uh, the distribution part would still be handled by the local utility, whether it be MG&E or We Energies or whoever. And uh, about 20 states adopted it throughout the country, uh, including your neighboring state of Illinois. And um, yeah, it's been a, around quite a bit. Uh, it's come back up in a few states in the last couple of years, but really no state has adopted it since 2000. So it kind of never took off. And the states that have it um, have had to do a lot of reforms lately to tweak, tweak it, I would say. When we talk about retail choice, I know there's some promises uh, to customers, but then there's the reality that customers and AARP members see. So what do you see as the sort of promises versus reality in retail choice states? Well, the promise has always been lower rates and that's uh, always been one of the goals. And um, so uh, that promise has been debated uh, for many years on if it's been accomplished or not. Uh, the jury uh, uh, really isn't still out. Uh, for the residential customers in many, if not most of the states that have engaged on uh, issues related to uh, retail choice have been disappointed and frustrated uh, 
The problem is, I think Illinois, since it's your neighbor, is the best case study. So um, Illinois uh, customers for the last three years would have been better off on the utility default rate in many instances than uh, on the, the marketer offering. And we can get into a long discussion on why that is or if that's true, but the Illinois Commerce Commission put out its annual report on retail choice last November and again found for the third year in a row that customers have overpaid by the hundreds of millions of dollars by not uh, staying with the utility default rate, which would be Comet or Ameren. And so basically they've been overpaying. And um, so really you ask yourself, then why are we doing this? It's actually worse than that. So Illinois wants to promote solar. So a bill just dropped yesterday complicated scheme to have an obscure state agency known as Illinois Power Authority try to enter into long-term contracts with solar developers. Very, very, very complicated compared to the traditional model because of course, ComEd uh, doesn't own generation anymore. So, um, and also the ICC does not do any type of resource planning like you do in Wisconsin with your medium-term plan, I forget the name of it. So it's very, very, very complicated. It's even worse than that. So now there's a move to get out of the PJM capacity market because they say that uh, they wanna promote renewables and clean energy. And of course the RTOs dispatch the most economical resource, which sometimes is not that. So they're actually trying to get out of the PJM capacity market and set up their own state capacity procurement. Uh, finally, um, the Exxon Corporation, which operates uh, five nuclear power plant uh, generating stations around the state, uh, convinced the legislature to bail out two of their facilities in 2016. And now they're saying all five of them uh, and some are twin units need uh, additional bailout because they're not economic under the current model. And again, they're claiming that without the uh, low emission um, electricity, uh, they're going to shut the plants down. So uh, it's just a mess and it couldn't be more complicated. Uh, maybe if you follow Illinois Energy 24-7, you could figure it out. But long story short, uh, the resource adequacy issue, uh, who's in charge of uh, making sure we have enough power is uh, very uh, vague in a restructured state. Uh, the RTOs have tried to step in with very limited uh, success. And worse than that, it's not a theoretical issue. We saw on August 14th, California had blackouts for this very reason. That was uh, not enough power. There was a lot of finger pointing on whose fault that was, but uh, basically uh, the traditional model seems to be a lot clearer on this issue. With all that said about Illinois, what is the actual customer experience there? Well, that's where our state offices have had uh, the most uh, engagement. Uh, and in, in Illinois, um, they just passed a law changing the marketer protocols uh, so they couldn't uh, offer a teaser rate, a bait and switch rate, so that um, uh, low-income customers uh, would be restricted from signing up 
if they're paying more than the default rate. Um, we've had some unscrupulous door-to-door -door, uh, marketing stories, uh, that type of thing. So um, basically, when you're dealing with the residential customer, obviously the load is very small, the economics are uh, questionable. So what had been happening is they've been outsourcing some of the marketing and the door-to-door -door and there were issues like they, the marketers were pretending they were from ComEd or they had some affiliation with the utility or this was a government program that you needed to enroll in and would you give me your account number and uh, not just in Illinois but New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Connecticut, actually most of the states that have uh, retail choice our state offices have spent a lot of time at the PSC and in the legislature trying to push through <coughs> reforms so that you couldn't, when your contract with the marketer expires, be automatically renewed at a variable rate that would be much higher, uh, that type of thing. And so, um, we, uh, especially our New York office, feels that some of the marketers have preyed on the elderly and uh, communities with not a lot of knowledge. So uh, it's been uh, very challenging and time consuming. So even if customers are signed up with a legitimate supplier, which sounds like it's not always a guarantee, they can end up paying more than if they had just stayed with the incumbent utility. And it, in many cases, that's actually what happens. Uh, that's exactly right. So uh, I can uh, send your uh, viewers a link to the Illinois Commerce Commission study that showed this was actually what has happened in Illinois in the last three years. And um, in fairness, I should say that 10 years before that, uh, the rate had been uh, lower if you went with some marketers, but uh, lately, for whatever reason, that has not been the case. So. I think you mentioned teaser rates, so they can set a lower rate going in and then escalate it with little or no notice. Right, they were automatically uh, put on a variable rate after say three or six months. And then also when the contract was up for renewed, they'd be renewed not at a fixed rate, but at a variable rate, which was often higher than the utility default rate in some states, so. And without regulation, sort of checking those rates and making sure that they're aligned with the actual costs, those variable rates can, they just seem like they're set arbitrarily or is there any rationale presented? So the marketers can offer whatever rate they want. So uh, it's up to them. Now in fairness, sometimes they will argue that they're offering a different product. So you get a three-year guarantee under some plans or you get a free smart thermostat under some plans or something like that. Some were offering airline miles and New York banned anything not related to energy or conservation. But uh, the marketers uh, have offered that they're offering a different product. So it's not an apples to apples. That's in some cases uh, true, but for uh, many instances, it's not. And so uh, it's been a very, uh, uh, time-consuming uh, effort to rein in the rogue marketers in the, particularly in the east and northeast um, 
And then, and also when they, when you buy a green product, often, oftentimes they're not actually contracting with a local solar wind farm or even a near, far away one. They're just buying certificates. So you're, you may think you're get you're promoting green energy. In some instances, you're just getting a certificate from the marketer or something like that. So um, that's been another issue. I think many Wisconsin utilities are offering green pricing programs now. So if you did want to have all of your energy attributed um, to renewables, <clears throat> there may be that option for you. And if it doesn't exist now, um, I think many utilities are looking at that and regulators then check that to make sure that is actually assigned to renewable energy projects. Yeah, there's been a, that's very true. You can already do that currently in Wisconsin. Another thing I wanted to point out is in Illinois, they put in new electronic meters, often known as smart meters, in all the uh, residences at a substantial cost. So uh, unfortunately, none of the marketers in Illinois that I'm aware of offer a rate tied to the time of use or the time of day. So you have this wonderful technology but because the utility no longer is in the business of selling uh, the commodity portion, uh, it's up to the marketer to offer time of day product and, um, and they haven't. It may be due to the data issue, trying to get the data or whatever. But um, now they're saying, well, let's have all the electric vehicles charge off peak or something like that. It's very complicated in a restructured state to, uh, to do anything like that, because again, uh, you've broken up the different pieces and the jurisdiction is unclear. So um, I won't get into all the details, but it's very, very complicated in a restructured state to uh, to do uh, link the, uh, the the time of use rate to the, the new meter. It sounds like it, and it. I mean, for those of you who are following along uh, in the energy industry and with this podcast, you're probably familiar with time of use rates, um, but it sounds like, you know, that's where we'd like to be going uh, to help make the best use of the energy system, ideally. So a system that makes that more complicated uh, sounds like a little bit of a disaster. Yes. So in recent years, I've heard about organize efforts in states like Nevada and Arizona to push for retail choice. Tell us more about AARP's efforts to oppose retail choice in states like that and where things stand today. We've been active in both states. I'll start with Arizona. So Arizona is like Wisconsin. So it's got two or three utilities and uh, they're regulated by the Arizona Corporation Commission. Um, the commissioners, unlike Wisconsin, are elected. And uh, some uh, large customers, which already have a buy-through program, are pushing to have uh, retail choice in um, Arizona. So it's driven by uh, a desire by some of the industrials to buy off the spot market. And that's nice, but in Arizona, unlike Wisconsin, they're not in a organized wholesale market. They're not in an RTO. And um, so uh, first of all, there's not wholesale uh, 
there's not a competitive wholesale market. So it's premature to have a discussion about retail competitive market when you don't even have a comp uh, competitive wholesale market. And by the way, AARP opposes states not in an RTO uh, joining one. And I can get into that if you want, but um, so that's number one reason we oppose it. Uh, number two, um, you know, who's gonna pay to operate Palo Verde, the largest nuclear power generating station in America? Uh, the uh, By saying you wanna buy off the spot market, what you're really saying, and that's the problem they're having perhaps in Illinois, is that uh, who is going to be paying the fixed costs, uh, which are substantial, uh, of operating Palo Verde if you allow some customers to just buy wholesale. So um, that's another issue. And um, so at a minimum, it's premature to have a discussion. And um, another thing that drives it is, it's very uh, common to not like your local incumbent utility very much, but uh, you know, you may not like your RTO and your marketer any, any better but um, the grass always looks greener and um, it certainly does keep everyone on their toes when you throw in the discussion. But uh, we urge uh, that folks look at the experience around the country, whether it be the California blackout on August 14th. Uh, actually the year before, ERCOT uh, almost had a blackout in July due to uh, a shortage of generation. Um, it wasn't as well uh, advertised, but they struggled to, you know, incent the construction of needed new generation in a fast growing state. So we try to bring up those issues. Can you expound on that a little bit more when you're talking about generation shortages? How is that directly tied to retail choice? Yes, it's uh, very much tied to retail choice because under an open market, um, you know, no one is in charge of uh, building new generation. It's done through the pricing incentives, uh, whether it be in MISO or in uh, in Illinois or in ERCOT in Texas. So the theory is if the price is high enough, that will induce generators to want to build uh, new generation in the Texas market. And they operate at a reserve margin not quite half of what the rest of the country has and seem to be comfortable with it. But on a very hot couple of days in July of 2019, uh, apparently the wind stopped blowing and there were other things and they didn't have enough generation and they almost went to rolling blackouts. And, you know, if you're willing to rely, rely on the price system to incent uh, the construction of new generation, without any type of planning for supply and demand, um, and you have the, uh, the guts to withstand the, uh, some of the consequences of that, um, that's one thing. But you know, for the majority of our members, uh, on a Saturday afternoon on August 14th in a heat wave, which is what happened in uh, California, they want the lights on and they want the air conditioning on. And, um, that's that, and in a in a restructured market, um, they're relying on the price system to incent the incent that. Now in Wisconsin, because you're traditionally regulated, 
the commission uh, is very clearly in charge of making sure that the utilities are planning for um, needed new generation and transmission. Um, but in a restructured market, that's not the case. So in Nevada in 2018, there was a statewide referendum asking voters if the state should move to a retail choice model. This was the second time this was on a statewide ballot. If it passed, it would become law. Voters rejected this and AARP was opposed. Can you tell us more about why AARP was opposed and what you thought could happen if voters would have allowed this to go through? Uh, yes, uh, well, full disclosure, we did not take a position on the first vote. And the measure passed first time when it came up again, two years prior, yeah, it needed two votes. And um, the second time we did join a coalition for many of the reasons I've just given in the last 10 minutes. Um, so we didn't see benefits to our members. And so that's why we opposed the, uh, the measure. Nevada is a fast growing state, right? So um, also in the traditional model, you can control if you wanna have more renewables or you wanna have more wind or more transmission lines, you have a lot more control in the traditional model. Okay, thank you. I just wanted, I, I knew that AARP was involved there and I just wanted to sort of make it clear I guess what your role had been and what you wanted to do on behalf of AARP members to protect them. Right. So we didn't see benefits and we saw a lot of issues. So we were in the in the no side. If I can indulge you for one second, there's a related issue called community choice aggregation, which is um, often talked about, and we have weighed in on that issue as well. So that's where the entire community switches that gets rid of the door-to-door -door marketing thing I talked about. So there's that appeal, but um, uh, again, we have concerns about forcing the entire city to another supplier um, without a lot of uh, looking into the implications. I've heard about that happening in California. Um, is it happening in other states? Like how common is it? Well, it was very common in Illinois until uh, the situation came up where the default rate was a much better deal than the uh, the marketer offering, offering or what the local community and the community choice uh, model was offering. But that being said, a number of Illinois cities actually do have that model in effect. And indeed, it does get rid of the door-to-door -door trying to market to each single customer issue. But uh, Right now it's mainly limited to California and a few other states. So it just sounds like more work is needed um, and it could, it could create a more complicated system than already exists. What would the benefits be? Uh, the proponents claim that uh, it's a quicker way to get to clean energy goals than relying on the utility. So you want to go 100% of your power is coming from uh, renewables. Uh, they claim that that's a, a quicker way for the community to embrace it. Uh, the problem is oftentimes it's a higher cost uh, proposition and, and 
in all of the uh, instances so far, it's been opt out. So they force you into the higher price, new, new marketer community offering, unless you decisively uh, tell, tell them you, your city that you wanna remain with the current supplier or whatever. Interesting. I know um, here in Madison, it sounds like uh, the city of Madison and Dane County have been working really closely with Madison Gas and Electric, their local energy company, to uh, provide increased use of renewable energy. Um, and I think there are goals at the city and county level that they're working with MG&E on to provide 100% renewable energy for city and county operations. So it sounds like there are vehicles to getting there if communities do have that desire to go more quickly um, towards these carbon-free and renewable goals. I know here in Wisconsin as well, um, all of the all of the investor-owned utilities have uh, carbon-free goals by 2050. Right. Well, it's, a, it's certainly uh, the direction the whole country's headed in, uh, including Wisconsin. So just to sort of summarize then on retail choice, if you had advice for Wisconsin state policymakers for a system that best protects customers, what would it be? Well, as I said, we favor the traditional model, uh, as boring as it may be, and we weigh in on things uh, that really uh, matter. So really in the discussion, what people are really saying is they want affordable energy. They want to be able to afford their gas and electric service. So the way you do that is you don't overbuild on the generation and transmission. You don't overbuild on grid modernization. You keep your spending in check, especially these days when loads are flat or falling. Uh, you tell MISO when they say they want to spend $4 billion on new transmission, but not have a scenario of low or no load growth, that that's not acceptable, that Wisconsin can't afford in the pandemic uh, in a time of flat or falling utility loads to be spending that much new money. And if you have to spend it, it has to be spread out. And you look at cost-effective alternatives to importing power from faraway states that would avoid the need for all this massive spending. So really what people are talking about when they say they want retail choice, they're offering off, 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 uh, really saying they want um, affordable energy. And so uh, the way you have affordable energy is you make sure that you do cost-effective spending uh, that's really needed and then reflects the load growth, if any, in your state. And um, that solves the problem. Uh, if you actually have, have to do something, I like the Arizona model where they have a pilot uh, buy-through program and other types of uh, innovative alternatives that sort of tweak without a wholesale change. And that buy-through program, that's mainly geared towards industrial customers, right? It really is, yeah. And can you explain what a buy-through buy is? I'm not the expert, but my understanding is it allows uh, a few customers the ability to buy on the wholesale market in exchange for agreeing to be interrupted or something like that. It's like real-time market pricing. And yeah, yeah I, I believe.
believe all of the Wisconsin utilities now offer a program like that for their oh, industrial okay. customers. Um, and they've, and working with the commission really have structured it in a way that it shouldn't harm other customers. So they're not passing costs on to the retail customers, but they have, like I said, put a lot of thought into this at the commission to try to make sure that um, other customers aren't being harmed. While I've got you, Bill, uh, I just I, I wanted to talk about a couple other relevant uh, federal topics. Um, you know, we have talked about on this podcast uh, that Customers First Coalition have have been vocal supporters of federal funding to help ensure customers are staying on top of their utility bills during the pandemic. Um, I'm I'm curious, has AARP been working on the issue of utility arrears at the federal level and, and what have you been up to there? Uh, so I only work on the state level, uh, so we have not done any federal work, but we filed comments Monday at the Colorado PUC in the disconnection docket. So we are very active on disconnection, arrearage management, repayment plans, getting everybody on LIHEAP and other energy assistance programs. Uh, and the entire issue, yeah. I mean, I think for us too, Customers First, we mainly advocate at the state level, but the federal funding for LIHEAP and energy assistance comes from the federal level and is administered by the states. So that's why we've been active out there. Um, so I think the state level disconnection moratoriums have been important right. through the pandemic but we also wanna make sure that people's bills aren't piling up during that time because the disconnection moratoriums will eventually end. And we wanna make sure there's not mass disconnections happening at that point. We wanna make sure people have stayed on top of their bills. And when people stay on top of their bills, then energy providers are able to fund the operations that continue to provide reliable power. So we have we have been vocal advocates on that, and I'm I'm happy to hear that it sounds like you've been active at the various state levels as well to make sure that customers are not only staying connected but staying on top of their bills as well. Yeah, it's the number one issue last year, and again this year it was the pandemic and its implications for folks that have been adversely affected, including the impact on the utility uh, bills and ability to pay them. It's the issue. Yeah. And I agree with you. Disconnection moratoriums are great, but it just kicks the can down the road. We can keep this in or take this out um, because I'm not sure, given what you just said about your work at the federal level, if you have any comments on the new FERC Office of Public Participation. I have comments on a lot, even if it's ah! uh, not 100% of my uh, job. So. Since 1978, in the Public Utilities Regulatory Policy Act, FERC has been told they should make it easier to participate for consumer groups. For 10 years, public citizen pushed for something. And in a surprise, we got it in the uh, recent COVID relief bill of all places. It's a great development. Um, I applaud. It's a victory for consumers around the country because so much of your bill is uh, coming from what FERC decides now. And uh, FERC has been very uh, consumer unfriendly. They're gonna have intervening intervener funding 
which is what you have in Wisconsin, but they're actually going to use the California uh, flavor of intervener funding and uh, a lot of other reforms to make it easier for consumer groups to weigh in at FERC on very costly proposals that affect our retail consumers. So I think it's just a wonderful development. All right, last question. If you had all the power in the industry, what would be your first order of business? Well, I have to talk about my two passions and you can follow me on Twitter at RTO Watchdog. So the number uh, two, the two issues for me are um, making RTOs disclose the retail rate impact of their proposals. So when somebody tells me we just approved a $4 billion transmission expansion plan, I want to know what the retail rate impact is on the average electric rate payer in Indiana. Uh, my other passion is the recent discussion on forcing everyone to use electric heat. So I grew up in Parkwood Hills in a gold medallion home. It was all electric built in the late 60s. Uh, and, and it was gonna be, the electricity was gonna be too cheap to meter. So we had the pleasure of using electric heat the neighbors had $200 bills, we had $800 bills in January. So when someone tells me that everyone has to uh, abandon a certain fuel and use electric heat, whether it be a heat pump or whatever, I, I have to wonder, uh, is that really an affordable and a good idea? And what are the implications, not only for the electric rates, because you'd have to triple the amount of electric infrastructure, but the abandoned gas costs for the remaining folks wouldn't mean that gas rates would have to go up too. I'm sure I'm missing something, but uh, it's the worst trend you've never heard of, or maybe you have heard of, and uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. <laughs> for our listeners' background, I think that is part of a trend we have talked about on this podcast called electrification. Um, as as states reach towards carbon-free goals, um, there are you know using natural gas for heating homes um, does represent direct fossil fuel usage. The thought is, as utilities transition to zero carbon generating sources, if you're using all electric heat, eventually that will be a carbon-free way of heating homes. So I'm not aware of any proposals in Wisconsin, at least, requiring requiring electric heat. I think those conversations are just beginning as people sort of start to look forward and say, you know, how do we eventually get to zero carbon? Right. I was being uh, a bit, a bit, bit tongue-in-cheek. I'm, of course, talking about so-called beneficial electrification discussions. And I will point out in the Midwest, <clears throat> any new electric load will be served by the Columbia coal plant or the Janesville gas plant. In the short run, it's not going to be served by 100% renewable energy. <clears throat> Maybe that's not the case in other states, but in the Midwest, your incremental electric load is <clears throat> gas. And so 
if you're not burning it in your furnace, they're burning it in the Janesville plant to serve your electric, all electric home. I believe it is the town of Beloit. Oh, Beloit, I'm sorry. <laughs> Some experience on the matter. Okay. <laughs> no, yes, uh, there is. And, and it should be noted that gas as sort of this transitional resource um, as utilities transition to cleaner uh, generation sources, you've got coal gas plants, I think, emit about half as much as a coal plant would, and they are able to ramp up and down really quickly. So they've been able to facilitate um, the new renewable load that's coming online, uh, which of course, renewables do not require a fuel source, uh, but also they are intermittent. So the gas has been sort of a stepping stone, some view it, but I know there are efforts to think sort of beyond, beyond that, what happens next. Um, in the I'll make one third comment if you'll indulge me. So that brings up the issue of premature retirement of power plants. So let's say a state spent $3 billion and built a state-of-the-art power plant uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and it was the largest, yeah. hypothetically, and it was the largest investment uh, of any uh, thing in the year that it opened. So now fast forward to 2021 and folks are saying, let's retire all the blank power plants prematurely. And, um, you know, many of our members and many of the residents of Wisconsin uh, have other issues on their plate right now, other than uh, re prematurely retiring plants. And so we started with Kiwani and we're working our way down. I just worry that you know, you may not like a certain fuel. It's like I just bought an SUV and realized I wanted a Tesla or a hybrid uh, Prius. You know, uh, some things in life uh, maybe should be phased in. And so to do everything immediately might uh, further raise the residential uh, rates, challenging affordability in the short run. So I, I just pray that states, when we have these conversations, uh, you know, you you today, if you would sit down, you would not perhaps cite a 1200 megawatt uh, power plant on Lake Michigan that uses a certain type of fuel that you don't want to use anymore. But the reality is we are where we are. So um, can we keep that affordability uh, uh, in check when we have discussions on things that uh, maybe are good long run goals, but in the short run, may not be the best idea you've ever heard of. That's a good point. And I think kind of getting back to our original topic of regulation, obviously these are complicated issues and having having sort of that consistent oversight to make sure that any investments are in the best interest of customers, um, I think is important. And in some cases, just being able to be responsive to changing times, changing price signals, um, and but still making sure that it is in the best interest of customers uh, that the you know that the utility is moving forward on. I think that's where effective regulation really comes in.
and your, your folks over at the Hill Farms office building do a great job of keeping the lights on in Wisconsin. And so kudos to uh, Rebecca and the team over there. It's been great working with everybody over the past uh, 20 years that I've worked with the BSC. Agreed. They've got a really nice team over there. Okay, Bill, I think that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we sign off? Uh, no, uh, just that the opinions I give are uh, sometimes just mine and based on my 43 years in the utility industry and uh, take them for what you want. But at AARP, we focus on not only sustainable energy, but fair and affordable rates for uh, not just our members, but all residential customers. And I thank you for inviting me today. You can for find more about AARP at AARP. .org, and you can contact me at uh, wmalcolm at aarp.org. Find me on Twitter at RTO Watchdog and find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Bill. We will put links to all of the websites and Twitter handles in the show notes. And there was something else you mentioned, oh, the Illinois Commerce Commission report. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yes, that's a real eye-opener for anybody that wants to talk about retail choice. And the, the hundreds of millions that have been overspent on uh, being in a higher-cost supplier are an eye-opener. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. Great to see you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening today. As always, you can follow The Electric Wire on Twitter at The Electric Wire and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a monthly broadcast schedule now, so we'll be back in February. Thanks again for listening.